Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. In case you didn't know, this is both a podcast and there is a YouTube version of most every episode. So if you want to watch this following discussion that I'm going to have with my friend Justin, then you can go to my YouTube channel, uh, just YouTube, uh, press and sprinkle, and it should pop up. Also, if you want to join the Patreon Theology in the Raw community, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw, or just look down into the show notes. There's all the details there that you can click on. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month, become part of the the uh, Theology in the Raw Patreon community. And um, yeah, you can support the work that is going on here at this podcast. If the podcast has blessed you, touched you, challenged you, uh, made you angry or whatever, you just want to throw money at it, then you can support the show, theology or patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. My guest today is Justin Bronson Berenger. Um, and I do talk a little bit about how Justin and I got to know each other many, many years ago. It happened at the beginning stages of when I was writing the book, Fight, A Christian Case for Nonviolence, which actually is coming out under a different title called Nonviolence, The Revolutionary Way of Jesus. Same book, different cover, um, different title, different forward too. I got a forward, uh, uh, Greg Boyd forwarded that new uh, rebrand of the book. So you can check that out. Um, but Justin was, he was really significant in shaping that book. And I talk about that, uh, talk about it in at the beginning of this conversation. Um, but Justin, he, he's a super, super smart dude, um, PhD student finishing his PhD, or it might actually be done by the time this comes out. He has edited um, several books. Uh, the one that was really helpful uh, that I read many years ago um, in Thinking Through Nonviolence is called A Faith Not Worth Fighting For. Oh, what's the subtitle here? Let me pull this up. Um, Addressing Commonly Asked Questions About Christian Nonviolence. His recent book, though, that he edited, co-edited with, with a couple other guys, um, is called the business of war theological ethical theological and ethical reflections on the military industrial complex have you ever thought about that have you ever thought about war as a business a lot of people a lot of companies make a lot of profits off of war and that can be problematic and that is the bulk of our conversation that you're going to listen to we also talk about the theology of country music yeah. So anyway, there it is. So without further ado, please welcome to uh, Theology in the Raw for the first time, Justin Bronson Berenger. All right, I'm here with my friend uh, Justin uh, Berenger Bronson. Uh, Justin, this is your first time on Theology in the Raw, but man, we we have um, a bit of a history. Now, I'm gonna um, we, we met when I was writing my book Fight: A Christian Case for Nonviolence, which um, is actually coming out in a new. It's kind of being rebranded this year, um, but I don't. So you you probably remember how we came across each other. I remember it very vividly. Um, you agreed to read um, earlier drafts of Fight. And I'll never forget getting back your comments. You had more, your, the word count in your comments doubled the word count of the original section that I actually <laughs> wrote. And you're responsible. You are, I mean, I would say almost single-handedly responsible 
for pushing me from, you know, 95% of the way to embracing what I would, I don't, I don't know if there's a techno phrase for it, but I would say absolute nonviolence, that there is no um, violence as a last resort. And, and I, you know, that it's, it's tough. And even now looking back, I'm like, there, you know, that, that going from 95 to the hundred is that, that, that's a, I'm not going to pretend like there's not, you know, some tough things to work through and questions that are, that, that are tough, but that you, you, you convinced me, like you pointed out that, that 95% did have a lot of inconsistencies, um, you know, using violence as a last resort. So anyway, do, do you remember, <laughs> do you remember writing I, all those comments? <laughs> I do. I do. And so apparently I'm, I'm becoming notorious for this kind of thing because <laughs> My advisor recently wrote in the acknowledgments for a book he did on truth um, that I wrote something in there like this is the most boring chapter conclusion in the history of chapter conclusions. Revise it. And so he actually quoted me in the acknowledgments and was like, this is the kind of editing I got. But I'm thankful that he spoke the truth. <laughs> so as I've heard from a few people that uh, I, I, I might go a little overboard sometimes on yeah. the on the editing. But I, yeah, I do remember that. And I'm I'm glad that that uh, you got that book out. And since then, um, your your co-writer, Andrew, and I have, have also become friends. And yeah, so that's been great. Yeah. So I, I remember that for sure. For sure. So I wanna, we're going to dig into your, your recent book, uh, The Business of War, Theological and Ethical Reflections on the Military industrial complex um which i yeah th this i'm super excited about this but why, why don't you first give us a little bit of backstory for those who don't know who you are give us a five minute kind of uh, overview of your you know your your upbringing and kind of your theological journey and so on yeah um so i grew up in in um mostly in alaska uh as uh military brat, Air Force specifically, with um, my stepdad and my mom and my siblings. And um, we were, uh, you know, church-going family, pretty active in the church. But I don't know how much of that was, you know, always sinking in at home, if that makes sense. You know, it was kind of a rough home life sometimes. Um, but Grew up mostly, I, I was just talking to a, somebody else about this the other day. It was hilarious. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in like the northernmost place you can live in America, right? <laughs> so that, that hit me. And of course, it's especially relevant thinking about why it was called the Southern Baptist church, right? And, and not something else because of yeah. uh, its history with slavery, right? Yeah. And I, I didn't know all that as a kid. But looking back on that now, the the, the irony kind of sick irony of that is 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 apparent to me but anyway um and then when i was uh, i don't know young teenager so about middle school i moved to north carolina to move in with my dad and there we got plugged in he was uh with the churches of christ oh, yeah. um the restoration movement churches uh, a lot of you uh, might know them as the ones who don't use instruments in the worship services usually so then moved to that and I went to two Church of Christ affiliated colleges um, 
uh, and then, you know, so I went to uh, a Wesleyan, um, generically Wesleyan, not denominationally Wesleyan seminary where I got exposed to a whole lot more. And then, of course, now I'm doing my PhD at Southern Methodist University, where I'm sort of getting exposed to a whole new group of, of theological ideas and, and all of this. And so I'm kind of, a, you know, other people have said this kind of thing, a theological mutt, right? Yeah. Like um, if somebody were to try to label me, it would be, you know, Christian, anarcho, pacifist, uh, Anabaptist. Uh, social justice. I mean, you know, I don't know <laughs> how how I describe all of it now. I mean, I wish I could just say that I'm doing my best to, to be a disciple of Christ, you know, and 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 here are the commitments I have that are an outworking of that. But um, yeah. I've noticed that that it, uh, so much of the way our politics has even affected discussions in our church that we're reluctant to sort of even talk about what we think Christ demands of us if it's not what sort of the the majority of whatever group or groups we're a part of. Um, and so I've mostly, when it comes to beliefs like nonviolence and stuff, mostly been in, in uh, situations where I'm in the minority on that one, um, having been largely grown in evangelical churches and even now that I, I'm, I'm worshiping in a mainline church at a United Methodist Church, um, you know, even there uh, met with with not not by thankfully church leadership, but with some of the other folks in church mate, met with a great deal of resistance for for commitments to nonviolence and commitments sure. to giving away your wealth and commitments to um, uh, having a consistent ethic of life. So that makes you know my politics idiosyncratic, at least in the system we currently have, trying to, mm -hmm. you know, say, well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not for abortion, but I'm also not for the death penalty, and I'm not yeah. for um, people lacking uh, access to health care, and I'm not, you know, all of these things, because I'm for life. Right. Um, and so that's that's something that I think continues to, um, to, to work its way through my oh my gosh I thought my cell phone was turned <laughs> off worst possible you're fine you're fine I uh, yeah I just thought of it I think mine I'm not sure if I put mine on airplane mode either which I ah. do but anyway um sorry about that yeah well, to to add to <laughs> add to, to add to the interesting muttonness of your theology uh you also have you know you've got a pretty good southern accent and you look like you belong in the duck dynasty family so yeah. i imagine when, when people hear that you're a pacifist they they probably don't believe you at first or <laughs> there's definitely yeah and i've i've actually really tried um in recent years to think about really embracing who I am as, as, you know, even though I grew up largely in Alaska, a lot of my influential years in my teens and all, I was born in rural North Carolina and then moved back to rural North Carolina. Uh, you know, went to college in Arkansas, Tennessee, that, that poor white folks, especially in Appalachia often, um, need some of the same things that we see in, in, say, um, 
African-American liberation theology, while some of the needs are similar mm. for folks, for, for poor white rural folks, and I want to sort of embrace that in my theology. So in fact, I'm actually working on a project right now with a friend um, on, on theology and country music. I saw that. Uh, What's that all about? Because yeah, well, we noticed uh, we, we were invited, or th there was a series on on uh, theology and pop culture um, that's being put together right now by uh, Matthew Brake um, with Lexington and Fortress Academic, and and a lot of great books in that series. So, like pretty much anything you could nerd out about, there's a book for you. Um, but what we noticed when we started, my friend and I started looking, is there's like tons of books on rapid theology and rock and theology and jazz and pop theology you know pop music like some of these musics that are that are much newer have this this whole library of literature but there's there's very little about theology and country music and that's odd to me because country music deals so explicitly huh. um with theological topics and using theological language. And I'm, uh, one of the things that we're trying to find, we think that is similar, um, James Cone made the argument that, that uh, jazz and the blues, that kind of thing, provided a theology for African Americans. Mm -hmm. Before they had a voice, say, of academic theologians, that that music shaped and reflected their history. A, new, a couple new books that have come out on this, but like the idea that you can have something about cheating on a spouse, murder, uh, redemption, alcoholism, uh, being a faithful church member, all that on the same album. And it's not ironic because this is the real life experience huh. of these people living in, in you know, rural Appalachia and other places where it, interestingly enough you got the this the sound from out there but all of these folks um came from from poor backgrounds and and that that music reflects so much of what i think um can be really a positive movement in theology that could help with some of the the discussions that we're struggling through right at this very moment given all that's given you know happened in recent times yeah. uh, in terms of political violence and all of that. But also what I think it can do um, is help introduce some important theological topics to people who have been going to church their whole lives and, and then they've never heard about, you know, mm -hmm. eschatology. Mm -hmm. Or if they have, it's been in some really perverse way, you know, uh, some really bad rapture theology or something from a, a, a novel, right? Um, so anyway, in that in that book, we're just trying to to sort of take country vernacular and and country music and country lifestyle and and look at it theologically and ask questions about how it can inform theological and ethical issues. Um, you know, country the country world. I mean, massive extraction of resources in West Virginia, all through Appalachia, pulling out coal, removing mountains. And the people that live there are not benefiting from that, right? So I could go on and on about all that, but 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 basically, wow. it's it's going to be a book to introduce theological topics as they relate to country music. So we're covering kind of the basic, systematic theological loci. So 
uh, creation and um, eschatology and pneumatology and all of these kind of things. Yeah. Um, and it'll be a, a sort of primer in Christian theology via country music. Country music. So I, yeah, I, so I, maybe I'm describing it. I don't mind country music. I actually uh, was. I only listened to country music in high school. I mean, I boots, cowboy hat. Um, the yeah. Whole, the whole deal. Um, and yeah, chewed tobacco. My girlfriend's chewed tobacco, hunted fish. I mean, did, did the whole thing, right? Um, so I actually do have an appreciation of, of the culture that surrounds that. I, um, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm in that vibe necessarily so much now, but I, I, I and my daughter, who's a musician, I've, I've grown to try to appreciate all kinds of music from an artistic perspective, even if it's not my genre of choice but i would not so that's just my running start here but i, I would not have guessed i'm sure my listeners are mm-hmm. scratching their head too like country music theology isn't country music just profoundly superficial thoughtless hound dogs and pickup trucks and drinking and you know yeah but I, the way I, what would you say to that like would you say there's actually a lot more thoughtfulness going in or even if it is that that is a real lived experience that needs to be theologically reflected on or both uh yeah all of the above so some of the very best um uh, sort of protest music has come from the country music world um uh, john prine who who died this past year um had incredible protest songs about about things like coal mine the kind of coal mining that was happening you find um, uh, some great, some great protests, some war protest songs. Really, you find, yeah, I mean, just all through the the history of country music, there's there's really a complexity there. And what what I think you, your comment points to, and it, it is kind of a common one, is that there even even for folks who wouldn't intend to, uh, there's kind of an elitism that keeps us away from country music. Huh. Which is why I think there have been so few. Academic books written on the subjects that we're covering. Have, um, you know, do an academic book on Docker or rap. Nobody really questions that. They're going to say, oh, yeah, there's there's some brilliant work out there. And, some, mm-hmm. you know, this this will help us understand communities and subcultures and all this kind of stuff. And I want to say, why can't we mm-hmm. treat. Southerners. And so there's been a whole history, and I, I will cover some of this in the book and point to some other books that cover it in more depth, but all the way from the very beginning of country music, basically rich city folk came in the of poor country folk and had them record these songs that they would sing on their front yeah. and share with one another. And then they would find, they would dress people in like these overalls and straw hats was the look for a while. And it's called hillbilly music. And, and, and they're like, this is not how we dress. This is not, but it, but it had a, had a, a marketing look to it. And so a lot of what we know of country music really uh, has been influenced by yeah. the way it's been marketed and controlled by the producers. So there's so much country music that you don't hear on the radio. Um, first of all, that, that's, that's okay. great. And then second of all, there, there is some profound theology and, and, and some interesting things going on in a lot of more mainline country music, if for no other reason, like I said, it describes a certain lifestyle. There's a lot there to help people understand 
a worldview. Um, you were just talking about you used to chew tobacco. One of my favorite lines in all of country music. This is poetry right here, folks. Alan Jackson, one of the great, and I do mean the Alan Jackson is one of the great writers of uh, uh, musical writers of the past uh, twenty or thirty years. But um, wow. he's got a, a. It's all right to be a redneck. It's all right to have a girl named Thelma Lou that don't mind a little kiss when you got a little chew. <laughs> that is poetry right there, and and and, it, and and so it reflects your reality because. A lot of folks, and this is something that that folks do often that, that don't mean to. I, and I, I do this. I'm a, I'm now a city boy. I live in one of the biggest metroplexes in the country in Dallas. For the last many years, I've been working in urban areas. My kids go to a school where, as far as I know, and my wife works there too, uh, they're the only white kids at the school. Um, and, and so there's a way in which I'm disconnected from that. And so even I can look down on people and say, well, those ignorant, you know, backwoods country folk, they're bringing us down when when there certainly are some, maybe a lot of folks in that group who, who I would have issues with. But there's also some really excellent, incredible stuff in the South mm-hmm. and in Southern culture and Southern food um, in Southern hospitality. These are all real things that the church really could learn from and put into practice in other parts of the country and the world. And so I think we're not trying to make country music um, legitimate or relevant or any of that, because I mostly think that Christianity should not seek to be relevant. Um, But what I think we are trying to do is just say country people's lives are worth studying. Their ideas are worth thinking about. And there's a lot more wisdom in those traditions than we we yeah. might expect um, for those of us who haven't investigated. That's great. So. That, but you, yeah, you're challenging me, man. That's super helpful. And I want to acknowledge too. I don't know if you can see on your end. We're having kind of ongoing audio blips here and there, so I apologize. Hopefully, my guy can clean it up. He's pretty amazing. Um, and I, I want to give a shout out to a buddy of mine, Jay Newman, who's gonna love, love everything you're saying. He's very much. Um, oh, good. He, 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 yeah, he, he's he's. He's very forward-thinking in so many ways, but he's very, very 100% Southern, and he yeah. hates it, hates it when Southern culture is sort of labeled as just backwoods, racist, you know, white, whatever, all this stuff that he's like, dude, that, that's just so horrible for so many reasons to broad brush an entire yeah. culture and not um, – because, that, cause that, I mean, that is when you think of, like, country music, you do think – yeah, a little more rednecky, probably a lot more racism, you know, and and right wing this and nationalism that and stuff. But then, I don't know. To your point, you take any kind of genre of music, and there's going to be a, a, a complex intertwining of Christian themes and values and profoundly anti-Christian themes and values, from pop music to rap to whatever. Like it's it's any kind of genre is going to have that blend, and it, there's also going to be wisdom and beauty and art because humans are producing it and that's what happens when humans get together and we, we are created in god's image yeah. so if we put our hand to something and and produce something it's there's gonna be beauty somewhere in there so um yeah, yeah. No, that's good and I I, would I, say yeah. all of the negative stuff is there all the things that we're, we're we yeah. are trying to address the fact that most of country music has been white folks 
right? We, we had Charlie Pride, um, uh, uh, Ray, um, oh gosh, why did my mind just go blank? Ray Charles. Uh, huh. In country music, there's a great song called The Girl in the Country Song um, that's done by a, a female duo where they talk about how girls are used as props in country music. So all of that is there. And but so it's every it's in every genre it's it's well. in, it's in every it's yeah. in every genre though it's like there's no genre that's even Chris should we even start in on Christian music and some of the yeah I did a podcast with a guy a couple of years ago who was deep into the Christian music scene and kind of like what we're going to talk about in a second the business of war peeking behind the scenes of the money and greed and con- <laughs> hypocrisy yeah and, and, yeah no and, I, I've yeah, been in that world as well. Actually, I won't go into all the stories, but but um, did spend a little bit of time in that world, and I was really amazed and really uh, loved certain people in the industry for what they were doing and who they were. Um, and there were others in the industry that, uh, yeah, I I won't make comments on. Right. But no, that's good. That's I good. think. <laughs> There, yeah. there were some, there were some, there are some significant issues. And in fact, if, if you don't mind me mentioning it, since you, you mentioned the book, I'll mention the book is part of a series that I'm co-editing. Um, it called The Business of Modern Life. And the reason that's uh-huh. relevant is because we intend to have a volume in this series on what we're either going to call the church or worship industrial complex, where uh-huh. we're going to look at a lot of that. And we've got, we've got other books in the series too. There's, there's one that we have that's going together right now on the business of incarceration, the prison industrial complex. There's one on education. Um, there's one on um, farming, agricultural, industrial complex. There's the series that are in various stages of production, but one that we, we want to have in there is definitely that church worship yeah. kind of industrial complex to, to take a to take a deep dive into yeah. into that and yeah. what that's awesome you know what what's there and how money shapes theology um, and and I could go on for that's part of my dissertation I could go on about that for days but I'll just say for now money shapes theology and money almost always shapes theology in a negative way wow. That's so that, that's a good let's let's transition then. By the way, <laughs> the link on your website doesn't work. The business of modern life series that you have hyperlinked, I clicked over and it's not found. Um, Thank you. Yeah, they Whip and Stock, um, who who the series is through, just updated their website. Uh, like okay. just new one came out, so I will get the new link okay. and get it up uh, as soon. Thank you for letting me know. No, no, it's, they told me they had a new website coming and it's it's up now. But um, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like my and website. Should, my website's in, constantly has links that I put in right. Um, well, let, let's talk yeah. about the business of war again. That subtitle yeah. of this book: Theological Ethical Reflections of the Military Industrial Complex, co-edited, co-edited with James McCarty, came out October first, two thousand twenty. And by the way, I mean we're pre-recording this, obviously, but you're going to get a a discount code that should be listed in the show notes below. Um, we're not 100% yes. sure on what kind of discount there is, but there's going to be a discount if you go to the Whip and Stock website through this code and purchase it there. Um, you can get it for um, a cheaper price. So wh- why don't you give us 
background overview of the book, and then I, I, I mean, I the 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 title, especially the subtitle, says a lot, and you you know I, I can read between the lines and probably guess um, what you're getting at here, but um, yeah, I would love for you to talk about the book and also more specifically just the content, this idea that yeah. war could possibly be a business, which is a really frightening thing to consider. Yeah. Um, so it all started several, many years ago, actually, that my co-editors, Jimmy McCarty and Matt Tapey, um, they are longtime friends of mine. And we were having a discussion because a conference that we all attend, uh, the theme for the next year was going to be on business ethics. And, and I was thinking, I don't have any I, that's not my area, right? I, I write about nonviolence and, and wealth and poverty, and maybe I, you know, and so all of a sudden I was like, wait, maybe if we talked about business ethics, ethics as it relates to war, there's got to be something there, right? And so as I got to talking to Matt and Jimmy, they're like, yeah, absolutely. There's, and and so we knew uh, immediately that this was an idea, a good idea. So the 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 next year at that same conference, we had a uh, a panel that presented the some of the original stuff that got edited and put in this volume. Um, and what was interesting, two things, lots of people showed up to the panel. And for those who have been academics and been to academic conferences, often it's you in a room with five, six, maybe 10 other people, um, and you're presenting your work. And, and that's just the reality of it. And this one, the room was packed. Um, and, and a whole lot of, of uh, more well-known theologians were there. And, and one of them came up to me uh, afterwards and said, can I have a copy of your paper? And for those who, again, who aren't Amy, that's, that's, a, that's a high honor when somebody asks for that, because that usually means they think there's something really worthwhile in there that they want to dig into. So that's kind of how it all started. And then we discussed, OK, how can we put this in? in a, a book format and what other questions need to be asked. So um, the, the basic premise is this, that, uh, that war is fundamentally and first, that this is important, a business. Um, there's one analogy in the book um, that uh, compares war to cinema and it says the movie industry is first and foremost a business. Occasionally, it does put out good art, something meaningful. Um, but first and foremost, it's a business. Well, war, I think, would be looked at the same same way in some sense. We, we might say there have been good outcomes. Um, even though I'm nonviolent, I, I can still acknowledge that sometimes, you know, some good things come out of a war. Uh, I think, you know, uh, even though it wasn't America's uh, or the Allies' intent for a long time, but, you know, I think rescuing prisoners, Jews and others in, in Nazi camps, like I, I get, appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, but when you look at so many of the wars that that the U.S. has been involved in, you can tie them to economic interest of of particular people. Um, and so there's a whole group of people that really benefit. I mean, if you own a defense contracting company, 
you generally benefit when there's some kind of violent conflict because you produce the the goods or the services necessary for that to happen. And so those folks have, you know, lobbyists in Congress. Those folks often are in Congress. Um, a, a great example of, of this, I don't know that we talk about this much in the book, but Dick Cheney is an excellent example of someone who, who both was, was in government and had very strong ties to the defense industry. And I told this story, I think, on another podcast, but I'll tell it here because I think it's relevant. I was at a meeting um, at the Capitol building, actually, uh, several years ago. Um, not, not last week. We, you, weren't the, you weren't there no, last week. No, definitely the not there last week. No, um, you will not find me among the proud boys. Um, there were people that kind of looked I, like I, you, again, though. You might be, you might have I, I, I could, I, I could blend in. Um, I think I would definitely, maybe I should go as a <laughs> subversive spy. Then there they can go. really say Antifa was there or something. But anyway, years ago, I was at, um, I was at the Capitol and we were, we were doing a study on, on faith and public policy. And we met with some folks from kind of the world of national defense and like kind of thinking about how that works related to our faith and all this kind of thing. And one, one of the people came in and he basically said this, he said, I was working during the Bush administration. He goes, I don't think I'm probably supposed to tell you this is what he says. So I was like, this is going to be good. I've already put it out there in the world. So I'm not worried about saying it again. Uh, um, so he says that one day Dick Cheney comes into this office or this, this room where he and several others are. And he says, we're going to war in Iraq. Now find me a reason. And I kind of always thought it probably went down like that. But to hear somebody who was in the room say that, and then we have this whole weapons of mass destruction debacle, and we have all of that, it's, it's evidence right there that I, think, um, that I think war is a business and a business's job is to be profitable and so in order for these businesses to be profitable, they have to be doing business, which means they have to be either um, preparing people for war or, um, or fighting wars um, or pro pro providing, again, the goods and services. So I can kind of, if it would be helpful, just briefly list off some of yeah, the yeah. some of the chapters in the book. And that way, if there's a couple, like one or two that you may be. Mm -hmm. latch on to that you find that are interesting yeah, yeah. you want to ask about. I, I do want to just I do just want to acknowledge how disturbing that is that statement we're going to isn't war. it though but and yeah and, and, it, it, it's and yeah if you peek behind the curtain it's not that I mean just like you said if if there are businesses that survive and succeed on in wartime they're 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 creating products pro, they're creating products for war. Then when there is mm -hmm. no war, there is no business. When there is no business, your own business is not like you. It makes me curious. Like, what does marketing look like for a company that makes a lot of money when there's <laughs> a war? Um, yeah. And what happened? And and we've got there's some interesting stuff in here, um, both about America and some other countries about how. Um, essentially defense contractors, um, weapons manufacturers, all these kind of things, 
can basically charge whatever they want. Um, if they, I mean, there's, there's been, you know, we've heard of these billions and trillion dollar projects that didn't even work out, right? Like jets that were intended to be built and failed for whatever reason and different things like that. But these companies can charge astronomical amounts of money. Um, and so there's so much incentive for, for, and I, and I don't, there's, there's a point at which this could become sort of conspiracy theory-ish, right? Like I, 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 I don't know that that they're sending people out in the world to start conflicts. I don't, you know, or some some thing like that. But I do know that the, the, there's lobbyists um, in Congress. Who know that, like we were just talking about, the way that these businesses profit is by selling these goods and services, and so those goods and services in order, like. A bomb, it's kind of like any company, right? Like if I if I buy a product, bomb me to come by and buy that product again when the first one I bought is worn out, say a toothbrush, right? Yeah. Well, the same thing works with, a, 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 um, let's say, a company that makes bombs. In order for them to, there to be restocking, right, the ones that they sold prior need to be used. Yeah. Um, and, and and there's sort of there's a truth in that, but then there's also sort of a case where a number of countries have weapons stockpiles um, that are just massive. It's not just the U.S. Um, one interesting case that we talk about in the book is South Korea, and basically how South Korea, their military power and the money they put in their military is is exponentially more. Than North Korea, and that's just what South Korea themselves have done. And then we talk. Uh, the author of that chapter talks about the U.S. and other countries' comments to this. And basically, this little tiny country of South Korea is one of the most well-armed countries in the world hmm. because of the the the. And I don't want to acknowledge that they're not a, potentially a real threat from North Korea, hmm. but North Korea has has a pea shooter compared to, mm. and, and, and what's interesting about that is, is that even though that's the case, South Korea keeps building up their arsenal, um, with newer, better, more stuff. So, um, anywhere there's, there's a perceived conflict also becomes, or perceived possibility for a conflict also becomes a hot market for, um, Weapons trade. So there's more than just weapons trade. That's kind of what I've been focusing on. But uh, we we also have so the book is broken up into four sections, okay. and all of the books in the series will be the same sections. So we have uh, first one theological foundations. Then we have the business of war and history, practicing the business of war today, and resisting the business of war. So each book will have basically that same setup and. So we have the business of war in the Bible that Miles Wernts, who's a who's yeah, a an excellent um, a theologian, has written some really compelling work on nonviolence, among other things. Um, he is he's kind of like me. So he he was in the Baptist world, but he just moved to Abilene Christian University, right. which is a Church of Christ school. <laughs> um, uh, so Miles and I share that in common. We got 
Christian ethics and the problems of war and business. So kind of looking at just what are the basic issues that are here. Um, and, and in that chapter, of course, the issues at play are some of the things that we've, we've talked about, but we haven't talked about like the, the fact that um, the American economy largely depends on these businesses being successful. Plus, there's, um, uh, and I talk about this a, a fair bit in the chapter I wrote, but there's a reality that um, actually comes out great. There's a country song that actually addresses this well. Um, the the one about um, uh, cornbread and chicken by Zach Brown Band. And they go through this whole life. Uh, this we we get to drink our beer, we get to wear our jeans, our, our Rango jeans, or whatever. We get we get cornbread and chicken, uh, corn cornbread and, and fried chicken. And it's like this really nice song. And at the end of it, though, it goes into this very patriotic. Thank the soldiers for letting me live a life, basically that's comfortable and convenient. And so we talk about that too, about how so much of what. A, uh, we think and talk about in, uh, in terms of things like freedom in America, they're really freedom to consume hmm. and freedom to convenience. Hmm. Those are, are really the things that are most often being defended in contemporary conflicts or in this, in this um, economy that revolves around the military industrial complex that brings in, you know, all the other businesses. Cause you have to think about, all these manufacturers, of course, you know, they buy metal, they buy, I don't know what goes into making a, you know, a Patriot missile, but whatever the materials are, they buy those from other companies who buy, you know, raw goods from other, you know, like, so there's a whole economy in this. Mm -hmm. And so much of it ends up being for just when we think of freedom, um, we're, we're mostly talking about our comfort and convenience. And um, I think that's an important would, note. Would, like and, freedom and, of religion come in there as well? Or is that, well? Well, I think we care about those things. I think those things are, are certainly realities, but, but the, the vast majority of violent conflicts that the U.S. has been in have little or nothing to do with at least American freedom. Okay. Um, and I would argue they generally have little or nothing to do with the freedom of the people in those places. Uh, Stan Goff is one guy who's written a lot on this. He's worth uh, reading. Um, he was a former Army Ranger, okay. and he so he tells personal stories about the horrific stuff Wow. that he was a part of, and he is now very outspoken um, about this. But but we have one on the business of war in Latin America. There's this whole series that, that is, has been bipartisan where like democratically elected leaders of, of South American yeah. countries that the U.S. doesn't like, the U.S. finds a way to get rid of them and try to put in people in power they like. This happens um, in in the Middle East. This This happens in a lot of places where we see we, we bring, we, you know, bring democracy mm -hmm. and the people vote and the person or people they vote for are not the people we want. And by, by we, uh, I mean, you know, certain yeah. people in, in, in American leadership don't want. So then they go in yeah. 
and well, and change the results of those elections and stuff. So there's well, that real all quick, kinds real quick, of issues. Real quick on this. that, I mean, it's really important to note that most people don't even know this, but that's we did we did that exact thing in Iran back in the fifties. A democratically elected mm-hmm. leader um, was put into power, and I've this been years since I researched this, but it's very well known. It's not like a conspiracy theory at all, but a democratically elected leader who happened to not be kind of pro-America was elected. We wanted a pro-American person, so we went, took him out, and installed a guy who was horrible towards his own people, but he was in, you know, in cahoots with America in the 50s or 60s or whatever. And that started mm-hmm. this whole thing where all of a sudden in 1980, you ha- you've got the, what was it, the... Um, the kidnapping or whatever. Some American people were rain contra. Yeah, 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 and yeah. And a lot of Americans are like, how come they hate us so much? And they're like, you guys, how come you hate it? Like you guys have been meddling in our affairs for 40 years. Everybody here knows it. You guys are oblivious to it. Then that case, then even that's linked yeah. to the Gulf war and Saddam and all these things. And, and then I hear people here's, if you could play devil's advocate maybe, or just help me understand like, what am I missing here? I hear people say, you know, the Middle East people that are, you know, running planes through our buildings and all this stuff, they just want to take away our freedom. And But if you think about that, like what in what world would some person unprovoked on the other side of the world wake up one day and say, that country over there on the other side of the world that means nothing to me, I don't want them to have freedom. I'm going to go take it away. Like what? <laughs> they just they, they don't like yeah. it. America has freedom, so they can go take it. Like that just doesn't make any sense. Am I missing something there? Like, what's the logic behind they just want to take away our freedom? Kind of. Therefore, we need to go and defend ourselves. You know. Um. So I actually uh, last year TA'd for a course called Islam in the West, and we went back through um, kind of early mid twentieth century and looked at some of that. We read we read a lot of um, uh, primary source materials like for these different historical time periods and a number of things happened. But the way that I understand it most is that after World War Two ended, the great global powers uh, or the, the USSR and the US that came out of World War Two were trying to figure out how to divvy up the world, essentially. And so part of that meant getting into um, certain places in the world. And so for the U.S., um, oil obviously was was a big driver. If you can control oil, uh, you, you can have a lot of control in the world because so much of our modern life relies on that. Um, uh, the the greatest polluter in the world, by the way, happens to be the American military. Um, really? So when we talk about things like, uh, you know, uh, global warming or climate change, the, the biggest contributor happens to be the U.S. military. Is, but, is that, um, is that, is that, a, is that a, an art, a perspective or just an observation? Like, is that, can that be easily backed up factually if somebody's like, no, no, um, no way? Or? It's been quantified. I wish, you know, obviously I don't have the link right in front of me, but it's been quantified where folks can can figure out how much um, exhaust comes from planes and boats and so on and so forth okay. and, and quantify that and say that, you know, that is a larger quantity of, of toxic <coughs> gases and stuff and wow. whatever other 
things. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that can, folks can find that, but, um, so playing devil's advocate, I would say that, that the U S is largely responsible. The U S and the U S allies, Western allies are largely responsible for a lot of the conflict in the middle East, because, um, in the early 20th century, um, it was the chic thing to do. That's funny. Chic could also be, but anyway, um, didn't mean for that wordplay, but it was, it was the, the cool thing to do for wealthy people to travel to the middle East. The middle East was like one of America's big party grounds. Um, and people would go over there and they would, they would, you know, go to Egypt and then they would go up, they would go to Jordan and they would explore all the ruins and like, and there were, there were beautiful, luxurious hotels. There was, there was, there was, there was this whole like thing where that, that was a big deal. But, um, then we had some of the history that I just gave you kind of unfold and it's way more complicated than, than that. But that was a big piece of it was how these two world powers and now China and some other players, in fact, a player or two in the Middle East, right, that, that have pretty good wealth. They're all kind of battling for um, territory. But I think more than territory now, it's battling for being able to get one's goods and services to as many consumers as possible. Yeah. This is really important, right, that we have access to get goods from China. Uh, in fact, years ago when I was teaching, it, I, I dumped out a bag of random stuff that I had brought from the U.S., an alarm clock, a T-shirt, a bunch of other stuff. And I said, where do y'all think this was made? And they, they had a lot of guesses. And I, I said, come up and look at it, right? And my students came and look, every bit of it was, was made in China. And they were so fascinated by this because they didn't even realize um, the that China was doing this. And so it, it makes sense, too, that these, these countries that are trying to be economic powers um, build up militaries mm-hmm. because they want to protect, protect economic interest. And, and this, is, this is one that's hard to say without going into much, but often, and this is, so goods and capital are, are, are treated better in their movement often than people. So we care about getting good services safely to where they're supposed to be. And yet we have a huge, one of the, the greatest refugee crisis in history going on. And we're more concerned that our goods, our, our package from um, that big company that starts with an A that's named after a river and a jungle, um, that we get that package that day or the next day, right? And so we... A lot of the war, again, this goes back to the convenience, goes back to where we don't we don't pay attention to the fact that there's a conflict in Yemen right now that's absolutely disastrous, that the U.S. is playing a major part in. Um, we don't really? pay attention to the fact when when this is one of the chapters we have when um, the U.S. says no more boots on the ground in, in whatever place. Usually what they mean is no more official military boots on the ground and they replace those folks with private military contractors. So you could still have thousands upon thousands of these private military, American private military contractors functioning in the place of the American military, which is also scary because who's their oversight, right? Right. Like, so they're, if they're, they're a business 
in in a in in a direct sense, whereas the U.S. government kind of is made up with business interests. So at least sometimes the military has theoretically rules of engagement and stuff. Private contractors don't necessarily have the same kind of rules of engagement. They might be more like based on your conscience or these kinds of things. And and also I would add for the fiscal conservatives out there, these private military um, uh, individuals, soldiers, basically they're 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 essentially mercenaries. I mean, that word has uh, you know, but they're they're being paid outside of the official military to go yeah. to be fighters. And and the, are they real the quick? Writer, just, just to clarify, and I, I sorry, this might be a stupid question, but are they are they still sent by the American government? It's just not the American military that's going, or are they just going on their own like? Like who who's sending them there? Who's sanctioning this? Or is it um, uh, think, countries overseas that are saying, "Hey, can you come over and we'll pay you"? Or yeah, who's? It, it seems that there's some mix, but I think most of it is the American government. Basically, it's contracting out work officially, so, not like under the table. Yeah. I mean, it's like okay, no, this is contracted work, um, and same way that that the government contracts you know private companies to build roads maybe or whatever different kinds of things that happen in society um but they're they're outsourcing or contracting for these private military contracts and what i was getting at with the, for for the fiscal conservatives out there is that it costs way way more to send one of these private military contracting um per- personnel than it does uh, uh, one military person personnel. So these private military contractors um, might be paid three, four, five, six times. I mean, they, they could the scale is going to vary depending on what kind of work they're doing, but paid more than the American military personnel themselves. So in fact, what happens a lot is that folks will do a, a shorter career in the military with the intent of moving to the private sector because they know if they do their time in the military, that can get them into this private sector where they can then, um, where they can, uh, then make more money. In fact, I know an individual, um, uh, that did that and now owns a, a PMC, a private military contract there. They, they do, I think software stuff related to like military drones and whatnot, but but that group of people that started that company moved from military roles where they had learned a lot of the how-to of this kind of stuff into the private military contractor roles, and now they're making bukus of money compared to what they would have ever made even as a, a four-star general or, or whatever yeah. in, in the military. And so it's a very expensive thing, the business. And I think that is something that's worth considering, again, for fiscal conservatives. Um, why, why, would, would quick, why, why would the government do an independent contract, an independent military group, rather than just the sending our military? What, what, what's in it for the government? Is it they say face or they can say like, hey, we pulled out of Afghanistan or whatever? Or yeah, yeah. That's it? A lot of it is that, so you can save face. Also, people have a really soft spot in their heart for military personnel that get killed during battle or during, you know, whatever kind of conflict. 
if they get killed or in a helicopter crash, all those kind of things. But and, and then there's a usually big ceremony that goes with that. And they bring, you know, bring bodies back caskets and salutes. And and there's like a, that, a real, you know, touching kind of feely, you know, touchy feely kind of thing about that. But a lot of the private military contractors, if, if they get killed, they went over there as a business person, mm. as, as somebody who chose to go over there to get paid, who. And so we we don't tend to mourn their deaths. We don't. There's no pageantry or, or pomp and circumstance around their their remains being returned home. There's none of that. And so there's definitely political good reasons for for optics and the like to have these private military contractors. And then, frankly, and this might be me speaking just beyond a bit beyond my expertise, but this is is what I think is going on based on the research I've done. And some of what I mentioned already is that often these private military contractors have um, more freedom to do certain dirty work and the like um, than than actual military personnel, right? Because their oversight, even though they've been sent as a contractor of the government, their oversight comes primarily from their company, not from, you know, the, the Congress or, or or whatever, like Congress is not got a ton of legislation about how these folks need to act when they're in these situations. But again, the military officially has rules of engagement that, that, and, and, you know, they're not always followed, um, but at least they're there theoretically to try to restrain or guide the actions of military personnel that are in conflict zones, whereas these other folks um, not. So there's, yeah, it's, it's a combination of some some of all those things. And that chapter, um, I, the that chapter uh, was written by Bradley Burroughs, who is also just a, an excellent scholar. And I, I forgot to mention Christina McRory did the second chapter in the book. I, I, I mentioned her chapter, which kind of addresses the the kind of big picture, the ethical problems of the business of war. Um, and she's a, a wonderful scholar. We felt really. Um, What's her name? Good about this group of people. We we also had in, in Real kind quick, of what, what was her, war what was her Justin, what was her name again? Oh, Christina McRory. Um. And she does a fair bit kind of in this, this world, um, you know, around issues of, of, of war and peace and violence and the like. Okay. Um, and then and then another chapter that I think uh, that's fascinating is part of the history section. We have one on globalization hmm. and, and war making and how globalization has contributed to global wars. <laughs> you know, right. This this kind of makes sense now with globalization that naturally um, that the business of war would become part of uh, what we would call something like uh, global neoliberal capitalist system. That's basically what it is mm-hmm. that now globally um, uh, is a huge business. So it's a you know trillions of dollar business around the globe, not just for the U.S. Even though we mostly focus on the U.S. because the U.S. obviously has the biggest military, the biggest defense budget, all of that by 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 yeah. a massive margin. Um, 
So, uh, and, and in that chapter, she argues that the military, uh, military spending uh, actually produces fewer jobs than other areas, areas of the, of the economy. And it reduces funds for job creation, and other sections that are more directly justice oriented. So, yeah. you know, there's the, there's the old quote, uh, I believe it was Eisenhower who talked about for every military ship that sails for every bomb is dropped, you know, that takes away from education and healthcare and all of these kind of things. And yeah. so um, if we think about this as a business, how might this business be brought into a little bit of control, have some restrictions around it um, that would help potentially reduce funding. And there's actually a great essay in here on, again, for fiscal conservatives. Um, there's a, a great essay in here by um, a wonderful Just War scholar, um, uh, Tobias Winwright. Oh, yeah. And um, he writes, uh, uh, he wrote it with one of his grad students, Nathaniel Hibner, but he, he he writes about the cost of um, certain parts of the just war tradition. So what what does it look like to go in and clean up after a war? What does it look like? What does it cost to go in and do peacemaking work, you know, prior to a war? That kind of thing. So thinking of, of, of again, it's a lot cheaper to send Peace Corps or to work with the United Nations or whatever, if, if, we're, if we're genuinely interested in conflict zones and trying to prevent, reduce, stop conflict, um, it's way cheaper to try methods like that. And these methods have been shown in a variety of ways to be successful. Um, uh, that's part of what I'm writing about uh, in my dissertation, a guy named Bayard Rustin, uh, who yeah. was Martin Luther King's mentor yeah. in nonviolence. Yeah. And he had... he a lot of impact on the way that pacifists and stuff think about war and accomplished more than probably any other person in the civil rights, single person in the civil rights, who I think, but, yeah. but, um, he was gay too, right? <laughs> he was, Which he back was. in the fifties was and a real interesting discussion there too, because he was born in the early 20th century mm -hmm. and he lived, um, through, you know, he, he was actually a conscious, conscientious objector in prison for a few years during World War II um, because he even refused to participate in the work camps that they had made for conscientious objectors because he said that wow. might contribute to the war effort and I don't want to do it. So he spent wow. three years in jail for the, or in prison for that. And while he was there, he actually organized for the prison to become racially integrated. So um, amazing, <laughs> amazing work and life that he has. And so he lives through this. He lives through, of course, the Vietnam War um, he lives through the, the when it comes to in terms of sexuality, Stonewall riots. For those who don't know, that's kind of what started the the um, modern LGBT rights movement. Right. Um, he lived through, you know, as a pacifist. He also at, at the very early part of his activism, he had some very brief ties with the Communist Party in America, which he, he broke off right. very soon and, and actually was a denounced him. He was a Democratic Socialist uh, slash had some some ambivalent anarchist tendencies, but um, this is getting way off track. Yeah. But I, I, I will I will say that 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 these issues that we're bringing up, a lot of them are not new. Yeah, um, they just have never been talked about precisely in this way, especially with chapter. So this is yeah. a book that hopefully 
brings together multiple facets, right, um, of the business war. So there's one on the the role of the of American evangelicalism in the Cold War and the buildup in the Cold War by uh, excellent excellent historian David Swartz, who's already got a book out on the moral minority that was about um, uh, the evangelical left, like Ron Sider mm-hmm. and uh, Jim Wallace and stuff during the rise of the religious right. Wanna, so he's got history of this, like just, how this happened in the U S Justin, I only have a couple more minutes and I want to, I want to, yeah. I, I do want to come back to the evangelical piece or maybe more a broad kind of pastoral, how, in light of everything you're saying and what the book's addressing, how should Christians think through this? I do have a, a question that I've been wanting to ask somebody because I heard it in some news outlet. I can't remember. I, I try not to pay too close attention to news outlets, but I do try to get in my information. And I quite mm. honestly have little trust for much of what they say. Yeah, it's, how hard, they it's hard to find truth in some places. Yeah, it's so narrative driven that I just... I take it with a grain of salt, but I, I did hear. Well, well, can I say, can I say that's also an, inter- an interesting thing because that's a, that's a, uh, there's a media industrial complex as well. Right. Um, and again, it's, it's like most of these industrial complexes, it's not partisan. The individual ways it no, yeah. partisan, but, but Democrats, Republicans everywhere in between uh, that have been in, in positions of power have, continued to um, at least ignore those issues and let them right. kind of rise up, or they have supported some of this right. very partisan newsmaking that draws people in because the goal is, again, to make money right. for most news outlets. Anyway, so... Here's my question, and it's kind of shocking, but it has to do with Trump. we, we got to at least mention Trump at some point. <laughs> um, and when this comes out, we're going to hopefully... Gonna bring him up, but. We're, we're going to be in a post-Trump era. Uh, neither... And I always have to... I'll qualify this. I hate always qualifying stuff, but neither you or I are Trump supporters at all. Here's my question. Is I heard that Trump, as militaristic as he is as a person, like a personality, I mean, he just embodies, as I said in a previous podcast, he kind of embodies America, whether you like him or not. But... Um, mm. But very, very, you know, narcissistic, militaristic, step on my foot, I'll step on 10 other feet, you know. Surprisingly, I heard somebody say he's the first president in years that hasn't actually started a war, gotten too entangled. If you go all the way back to obviously Reagan was highly militaristic. You have uh, mm-hmm. George Bush with the Gulf War, Clinton. I think he was wasn't that with the Serbia Yugoslavia kind of conflict. Yeah, it, Jimmy a, Carter was the the last president that that didn't put the U.S. into yes. Uh, now and then Obama with his whole okay. drone program that a lot of people don't care to acknowledge as peaceful oh, yeah. as he is as a but he yeah, drones so Peace many times. And then yeah, is it is it true that for whatever reason Trump is actually not done the least in bringing America into some of these conflicts. And even I know he, there's so much pro Trump hysteria or anti Trump hysteria that he can't get a straight, whatever, but like, you know, him being very diplomatic with the North Korea, you know, you got, if you're pro Trump, they liked it. If you're anti Trump, you hate it, whatever. But it, to me, I'm like, as a neutral observer, I'm like, isn't that kind of what we try to advocate for? Like, of course he, he barked really loud, but, um, he was weirdly diplomatic there and I, you know, but like, and other things he did nuke that Iran, Iranian terrorists, you know, but it wasn't, he didn't 
drone the whole village, you know, to take them down. And again, I, as a pacifist, I don't celebrate any of that. But is is that true that he has actually surprisingly, again, not gotten in, into conflicts like many other presidents have? Or, um, yes, I think I think that's that's true. It's not that he. Ha- so there's a couple things. America's currently involved in what are called proxy wars in in places like Yemen, where it's not directly America, it's America's allies, but America's providing okay. intel uh, or providing weaponry. So so there's still those realities, but also in this, I'm about to say some stuff that's really going to um, probably make some of your listeners angry, um, uh, but I- That's what I we're here for, man. <laughs> I get the impression, and I talked about this um, uh, when when the last election cycle was coming around, when when it was him and, and Hillary Clinton, and I said I think Trump is is undoubtedly going to be worse for the people of America and the people directly south of America, um, but I had a concern that Hillary Clinton might be worse for other regions of the world. And I think it comes to this. I think two things are at play from my observation. One is that Trump seems to lack a certain level of competency. And so going to war um, is something that, that takes planning and and time and and we're seeing what happens when um, we're, we're twenty years into a war that that was rushed into. So I think one thing is just sort of a lack of basic competence to sort of bring that about. Um, whereas, like I said, someone like Hillary Clinton, I think, is is kind of a war hawk with yeah. the competence. And the international experience and all that. The second thing, well, so that's one. That's one. I have three issues. Another one is Trump has global business interests. Uh, here that, goes. Here goes the money um, piece. <laughs> yeah. So he has global. I mean, there are Trump properties and various things in all kinds of places around the world. And and after this, he's going to want to continue to try to do you know real estate or whatever he does and so there's 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 business interest in not going to war in this case for him because some of the people who who are interested his goods countries like say russia um perhaps uh we don't want to get in direct conflict with because that could jeopardize his future Mm -hmm. um and his 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 children's future business yeah you know, plans, all that. So I think that plays into it. And then finally, I think that sort of strongman leaders, sort of um, dictator types, whether that's communist dictator, fascist dictator, um, there's an affinity that they share. And I think Trump is a wannabe fascist dictator. I, 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 I don't think that's an overstatement. Um, but whatever the case, he wants, and so much of what I've seen recently has showed that he wants or wanted to to have 
more power than than our system is supposed to allow. Hmm. And this is a problem that's been built up by both parties for years where the yeah. executive branches get more power, all of that. Right. But I think he wants like another level of power. And so therefore he shares certain affinities with Kim Jong um Kim Jong un where are we at? Kim Jong un um, and and with um with uh Putin Putin and yeah. with other folks who have that strong man type of leadership, he's got a certain admiration for them. Hmm. And so it looks like diplomacy is not, I don't think directly intended to be diplomacy. <laughs> it's actually him working yeah. on aspiring to be, <laughs> be the kind of leaders they are. He would love to have the kind of power uh. over his country that these leaders have over there, like almost absolute unquestioned authority. And this makes sense for all the, the, and people are diagnosing from a distance and I get that that's, that's, that's problematic. But I think a, a number of psychologists and stuff have, have said, we think Trump has all of the symptoms of classic narcissism, yeah. um, which makes sense then why he would want right. to be in all that. So those are kind of my responses to, to that question, um, I think we haven't started any new major conflicts, but I don't think that that was an intentional move right. on Donald Trump's part, other than him looking at not trying to jeopardize potential business interests overseas. It's not like he's so a that's, closet. That's, it's not like he's a closet it, pacifist or something. <laughs> no, <laughs> he, he does seem to be from a. From a military, a little more of an isolationist, um, just from a political, um, yeah, which is and kind of a different. I mean, that's that's, that's like you said, the motivation for that's really very different than any kind of like nonviolent or low violent ethic or anything. But um, uh, Justin, I actually we got to run. Um, I have to run. Oh um, man, this has been enjoyable. I feel like we're just getting started. <laughs> it's been an hour and ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I so guess you again, have to have me back on. That that that's what. So I'll see you again yeah. in, in a few months from now, and we'll talk. <laughs> there we go. There we go. And, and the book, The Business of War, I, uh, I don't know if you sent me a copy or if you have one your publisher could send. I would love to check that out. Theological yes, and Ethical Reflections on the Military-Industrial Complex. So, again, yes. there should be a code in the notes if you guys want to get a discount on that book. So, Justin, thank you so much for your work. Wish we could hang out. Wish we didn't uh, touch base every several years. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wish we could, too. And. And I have to mention um, the other the other book that I have out is much older. It's the one that I think probably connected you with me yeah. originally was the book, the edited volume I did with Trip York called "A Faith Not Worth yeah. Fighting for Responses or Re Responding No Addressing Commonly Asked Questions of yeah. Christian Nonviolence," and it it's it's all of the what if questions which you address many of them in fight. Yeah. But it's it's the what about Romans thirteen? What about protecting our loved ones? All yeah. of those um, important questions, yeah. and we have a chapter addressing each of those. That's, an so that's another book. book that if folks are interested, thank you. Um, if folks are interested in in nonviolence and have these questions and objections, then then this is a good book because each chapter addresses one directly, and so you can go right. to well, I'm really concerned about this and this is what's keeping me where at the 95 percent right, right that right. you mentioned at the beginning of the show and maybe reading one of those essays helps you get yeah. that final you know five percent to the 
to really embracing yeah. the nonviolence that Christ has has yeah. called us to. Greg Boyd's essay, I think he did the Romans 13 one, right? Um, uh, no, Lee Camp did Romans 13. Oh, that's a good um, one, too. But yes, Greg Boyd's essay in there is fantastic. It's so clear. Yes, does God expect nations to turn the other cheek? Right, right. Was the one he addressed. Yeah, there are some. I mean, we... I mean, Shane Claiborne did the afterword. Stanley Howard at Wasp did the forward. Like the, yeah. the 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 quality of scholarship yeah. in this book just blows my mind. And that's the case with both of these. Like I am just this like little nobody up and coming scholar. And that these really incredible established scholars have chosen to, to do this. I just I I'll say thank you to all of them right now because I honestly just feel privileged and honored that these folks would take the time to be a part of something that I'm putting together and do something that we all intend to be a service to the church. These books, though the second one especially is a little more academic, ultimately I write theology and ethics in service to the church. And my hope is that these will influence the church towards um, both embracing the nonviolent ethic of Christ and realizing how purchasing decisions and these kinds of things um, influence in, in, in some horrible ways people's lives in other parts of the world. And that also goes with, you know, the rhetoric of support the troops. I don't know what that means, honestly, because um, what, what does that mean when they're doing something that's bad for people in other countries but may benefit me in some way to keep my convenience? You know, like... Uh, all of that. So there's 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 a lot in this, but ultimately I hope it gets discussions started in the church just about how do we look at all of this in a way that points to the Lordship of Christ. Justin, that's a great way to end. Thanks so much for being on the show, man. Keep up the great work.